The thing that sets K-12 education from everything else is that you go to a dance class because you want to get better at dancing. You go to school because it's the law. <laughs> Depends on uh, who's taking you to dance class. Um, <laughs> fair point. Fair. Fair point. But I do think that all kids actually come. It is a choice. You know, you could do all kinds of things to make sure that you don't go to school, you don't activate, you're not part of it. And I would say that most students do come because they actually do want to learn. They're actually waiting for somebody to listen and to hear them. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Jillian Juman, CEO of Envision Education. Jillian told me the story of how she got there at the 2023 Deeper Learning Conference. We talk about how dance brought her from the Bay Area to New York City. We talk about her first principal job in Brooklyn at Forum Hill School for International Studies. We talk about founding a public boarding school in Los Angeles and about what she wishes teachers and administrators could learn from each of the places she's worked. There's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. And we started right at the beginning, talking about her family. Here's Jillian. I am a child of, of a, a black man who was, you know, grew up in Texas, very poor and a white woman who fell in love and kind of was under that belief that, you know, love was enough. Mm -hmm. um, it was deep enough, it was powerful enough, we're like, you know, late 70s, early 80s kind of power. Um, and I also grew up with that deep love kind of in my soul, but I also watched two very different experiences. Was this in Texas that you grew up? No, I grew up in California. So he, he was sent over kind of under the belief that sports is the way for black men. And it was in some ways, and it also was not enough. And so he, um, I kind of grew under this like sense of being feeling deep love and also feeling a deep level of my parents are experiencing very, very different lifestyles, very different ways, even in a marriage of 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I watched him slowly kill himself in, in different ways uh, through alcohol and other ways where he just did not feel part of society, could not um, kind of have the resiliency that money, experience, lineage gives you. Yeah. Um, so I kind of learned that uh, the way to do, the way to survive is is education and the way to give back with education. Can I ask, what did he play? What was the... He played, he came over as football. He was part of the Gator uh, football team for San Francisco State before it got demolished um, and, and basketball and baseball. So it was kind of a, a trifecta before he hurt his knee. And then he found out life is hard mm -hmm. when you hurt your knee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, yeah. It's always seemed like a crazy thing to me that like... Yeah. <laughs> You're, you're like, if you're, if, 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 if you're doing sports, then like your every, all of your plans rest on your body, your body. not getting hurt when you go out and hurt it every day. Right. When the intention is actually to yeah. tackle someone. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, it's like a, it's a wild thing. So, so you grew up in California. I grew up in California. I was born in Oakland Yeah. and then kind of raised in, in Sacramento and then spent most of my career in New York city. Got it. Yeah. How'd that happen? I was a dancer. So I, I wasn't really, I was doing education on the side to afford my dance lifestyle. Um, but I went out there to perform, to get go to NYU, and then started teaching on the side, and it became empowering, um, as much as dance is empowering. So I just kind of moved in that direction. I've always been just kind of, I dance where, where I'm supposed to go. What kind of dance? I was modern. Got it. Mm-hmm. And when you say teaching on the side, like what were you teaching? Oh, I was, I started out with dance, and then I did history, um, and then whatever, what, you know, those principles that come to you and they're like, can you do this? Can you do, take on this little project? So I started doing that kind of on the side, meaning, uh, after school and then it started on Saturdays and then I started actually taking on a full-time gig then I was doing part-time. So I just, I saw it as a part-time until it became 
my life. So your side gig becomes yeah. becomes your main gig. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you started full-time teaching, where were you full-time teaching? I was in Brooklyn. Well, I, st- I first started teaching in Santa Cruz, California when I went for my undergrad. And then uh, just on the side, because most artists are doing something to kind of survive and, and do that. But in New York City was my first jump into the, to the big big leagues, as I call it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious, though, because, like, that's true. Mostly they are doing something, but mostly it's, like, waiting tables or bartending or retail. <laughs> I wasn't going to do that. It wasn't enough money. I was dancing for, like, very little. And then right. It, and then they had these amazing gigs where they, they needed someone with expertise to come and work with kids. And what's... What's more powerful than that? I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seemed right, and it gave me summers off, so I could go to Cuba and dance, and I could explore the world and bring it back, and then I would teach kids. Yeah. So it just worked. So the the teaching dance part makes perfect sense yeah. to me. Do you remember the point that you like made the leap, or it was like, oh, now someone's just now I'm going to teach a totally different subject area? I remember when I made a switch to making. Da- I started doing dance schedules around my teaching schedules. Right. Um, and that was conscious. So I started and I started asking my principal if I could use the dance studio at the school site to actually bring my company there. Right. And that's a switch because I was actually hustling the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do remember that. And that must have been around 2008 where I kind of started saying, let's actually accommodate this part of my life. Right. It's a scary switch. Yeah. Okay. So I think teaching is by far the hardest thing I've ever done, like <laughs> yeah. classroom teaching. Mm-hmm. So what was it like when you started teaching full time <laughs> and you realized like what you got yourself into? Yeah, I feel like that was like a trifecta over time where I was like, what is happening? I remember feeling, you know, I was from California mostly and New York City has an independence about it. Kids are riding the train by themselves, right? And I remember feeling empowered, excited. I remember feeling a a bunch of things, but excited because I had dance allows you to kind of learn assessment and kind of, and teaching the, to the detail, but also allowing conceptual based understanding just by, by its nature. Tell me more about that. So, you know, dancing, you give feedback all the time. Actually, if you don't get feedback from your teacher, you're, you're kind of up in front trying to say, Hey, look at me. So you're constantly in this sense of exploration, feedback, let me put my own personality and kind of charge into it. So you're always looking for an opportunity for uh, reciprocation between your teacher, between the people around you, and connection Mm -hmm. uh, and creativity. And so there's a natural piece of that, and I found artists really understand teaching because it really transfers into this kind of deeper learning concept just by nature. Mm -hmm. So I I found classrooms to have an opportunity to do that in a very natural and organic way. Now kids also have opinions. And I also learned that the first year the hard way. Do you have an example? Oh, gosh. I remember a student was going back and forth. And they weren't wrong. Now that I look at it, I'm like, they weren't wrong. I was wrong. But they wanted to do something one way. And I was trying to teach it the the other way, like right, wrong thinking. And I remember he was escalating and getting upset in the classroom. And so I pulled him outside in the hallway and had a conversation with him. And I could see him in his eyes being like, F you. Um, And then, you know, he went back in and did the same thing. And so we just did this yo-yo back and forth. And finally, I was like, wait a minute, I'm the yo-yo. I am creating this whole thing over and over again for a half hour for this this student. And once I said, "I'm, I'm sorry, he was great. He did exactly what I asked him to do. And what, what age group were you teaching at this point? Oh, I was doing, when I went full, full, it was high school. Got it. So one thing, I totally take your point about the uh, assessment and dance thing. Mm. But one thing that I always wonder about mm. is like, 
the thing that sets K-12 education from everything else is that you go to a dance class because you want to get better at dancing. You go to school because it's the law. <laughs> Depends on uh, who's taking you to dance class. Um, <laughs> fair point. Fair. Fair point. Um, and I think there's also different points. There's, there's things you want to learn about your body and your development of your body, and there's things that you have to learn. And so I think there's a dichotomy there. But I do think that all kids actually come, it is a choice. You know, you could do all kinds of things to make sure that you don't go to school, you don't activate, you're not part of it. And I would say that most students do come because they actually do want to learn. They're actually waiting for somebody to listen and to hear them. And I think it's the same experience. The difference is that you you can't argue with, with a kiddo about a way to do something, right? You have to figure out a way to kind of make it work, whereas in a dance class, maybe you don't. And that's that's the beauty. It's the relationship. Awesome. Okay, so you're you're teaching you're teaching high school. What subject are you teaching? Oh, when I started, it was dance, and then it was dance history, then it was dance and history. How'd you get into leadership? Oh, geez. You know, it was. I mean, I blame it back onto those principals that are like, "Can you do summer school? Can you be the summer school principal?" Right, and you're just like, sure. And there's a part of you that wants to see people successful, and you want to help. Um, certainly, there was a part of me, and so I just started kind of leaning in a little bit more, and then getting curious. Wait a minute, the academic program's not making as much sense as it should. Maybe I should fix that. So I think there's been always a charge around, like, I'll take a project, I'll take a thing. If somebody's out, I'll help out. And I think I just kind of moved into this place of like, I'm either going to see the problem or I'm actually going to fix it. And so the more exposure I had to do that, I kind of did it. And then I got married and went to New Jersey. That was crazy. Um, and then came back kind of with a, a nice view of being like educated. I know. That was it is okay. so New York that you treated moving from New York <laughs> to New Jersey as a bigger deal than that moving from California to New York. Listen, when I went to New Jersey, I was like, whoa, I'm in a new, new place here. Um, but then came back with a very clear vision around work has to get done. Um, so, so thank you, Jersey. Right. Yeah. But so what so what was your lesson of so what was your lesson of Jersey? I went there and I had an opportunity to kind of see different districts in New Jersey and I was like, "Oh, so people are having very different experiences and even across the bridge, right? That's why it feels so different." Um, and the innovation wasn't always there across different parts. And it, New York is about innovation, mm -hmm. probably to the point of like you actually need to slow down and practice something for a longer period of time. Um, and I, I realized I love that about New York City. And I wanted to be a part of it. And actually, I could actually build momentum through leadership. So I just kind of jumped in. And I had some people that really believed in me, which was really powerful. Who's that? I wanted to shout out. Yeah. I, you know, Kathy Pellis, wherever you are, she's amazing. She takes over the world. She was just, just a beast in being able to say, you, do better, and let's get it. And um, she was just my, my rock, my soldier behind me in many different ways. And she told me the truth. She told me when I did really well, and she told me when I didn't. And what was she doing at the time? What was her? She was, she had been a, she, oh, Kathy at the time, um, superintendent. She had been a network leader. She had run School for the Future. She had built the school, um, just knew the system, but also just knew good education mm -hmm. and understood like deeper learning at a deep, at a deep level about adult learning. Yeah. Um, but she was the first person that said, hey, no one thinks everything you have to say is that great. So really be careful about what you're saying. And I was like, wow, that really hurts. And she's right. So it was just, um, I was able to kind of move up in that way. 
And so when you, in your sojourn in New Jersey, were you, were you teaching at that point? I was a director of innovation. So I was bouncing around doing some of that work, not right. innovating. Yeah. So you were specifically going like, when you say, <laughs> when you say you weren't seeing innovation, literally your job was to be the innovation person. You were like, oh, this is. This is, what am I innovating friends? We actually need an overhaul. And good people, smart people doing really great work. And, and some systems are, are slow and yeah. hard. How long were you like a full-time teacher? 10 years. Got it. And so when did you actually get a school? When did you become a principal? <laughs> that was in 2012. Where was that? That was in Borham Hill. So that was in downtown Brooklyn. What was that like? That was scary. It was a school that was really had all, all the makings in the world to be brilliant. Mm -hmm. Really. Beautiful campus in the heart of what I thought was just a beautiful neighborhood and really was uh, low attendance, was not being seen. And I think we had gotten into this rhythm of we are a community that kind of serves kids of color and that we're kind of doing our best and really working hard and doing that service. And so we got into a story that actually perpetuated a great deal of racism. So being a school that was kind of not seen and had this, it sounds like a kind of a... I think it was, we, we did not fully grasp the potential and did not understand how we possibly were perpetuating that. And so what do you do about that? So I think what I really focused on is like, we were an international school and at that point in time had nothing to do with international. So it's either we change the name and, and figure out our identity or we go hard and figure out what we're doing. And so what I did love about uh, the school and the community is that they really deeply wanted to figure it out. And they wanted to ask the hard questions and their heart was there. And, and you can't say that about every place, but I can say it about, about international. And so we kind of just dove in and said, what's the best kind of school we can create together, right? So we kind of jumped in a plane, looked up IB, had no idea, we had never done this before and just kind of dove in together kind of head first and got kids involved in the community and then went to the community and said, why do you keep walking by our building? And so we held many meetings with families to kind of say, why are you walking past the building? And it lifted up, right? Perceptions of black people came up, perceptions around culture and identity and language. And, and that's the conversation we had to have. That was the barrier. And so we just dove right into it. Okay, I feel like in my experience, when like you have a group of people, like some of whom are white talking and perceptions of black people as a thing comes up in the room, you're done. The meeting's done. It's just people are going to freak out. And there's not an obvious way to go, okay, that's out there. And now the next step is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. usually kind of shuts everything down in my experience. Mm -hmm. how, how did you take it to, to continue the conversation? Yeah, I think I didn't get offended I said, let's learn. I think that's the first kind of step was my kind of my stance was very kind of calm and and kind of allowed things to a point if we're learning. Mm -hmm. I also built some really strong allies of parents in the community. And I, I give most of the credit to, to the building of that to them because they were willing to kind of listen and have conversations and then kind of pull to the side and be like, you know what you just said? That's not okay. Yeah. Um, and as a black leader, I needed their allyship. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of moved it together and we had tough conversations and, and we were open for them. And did you have times where 
you had a parent who you really relied on as an ally who said something and you had to take them aside and say, so what you just said actually wasn't okay. All the time. And sometimes it was something that they had said or something that they had not even acknowledged as something that happened from somebody else next to them. Mm -hmm. So they'd bring somebody into the school that they're really excited about. They'd make a comment about reading levels of kids, although our kids were reading at high levels of reading. So there was perceptions and then no comment was made. And so the, the ask, the push was if we say nothing, it's actually just as loud as, mm -hmm. as not right. Like as, as kind of making a movement and stopping it. And those, my allies, and there was quite a bit of them in different forms were really open to start having those conversations. And a lot of our families from France, um, had a different perception of blackness, um, which is also in colorism, which was helpful to the narrative. In what sense? They're not carrying, or many of our parents didn't carry American. I mean, racism exists, colorism mm -hmm. exists, but they weren't bringing the American view, which allowed just a little bit of um, breathing of the different ways of perceptions of race that added to the dialogue. Right. And it, it just gave some richness to both our American experience, my experience, and, and their experience. Why do you think your close allies were so open to feedback and critique? Look, Brooklyn's really cool, you know. Um, it just has a bunch of people that that want to learn, want to figure it out. They're gritty. They're resilient. And so I found myself in a room just kind of saying, look, you're bypassing the building. It's a beautiful building. We have smart kids. They're not being perceived in that way. We have a great thing going. And I found a lot of families just kind of sitting and say, so say more. Let's, let's talk a little bit more. Mm -hmm. What's the, and so some folks got up and walked away. They weren't the right folks. So they weren't the allies in the moment, but the folks that sat wanted to figure it out and brought their different perceptions of what was happening. And a lot of it was around, we want our friends to stay together, but that is also a cohort of whiteness that's traveling across. And they were willing to have that conversation because I think they're also looking for opportunity for change. Mm -hmm. Was there a session that you, that you, that, that stands out for you as being a kind of a pivot point? Yes. I think, you know, I was able to kind of really build some principal cohort support around this, this idea that we needed to not have some schools have some kids. We need to have much more expansion at the time. And that allowed us kind of access to families who normally didn't know it was safe or okay to even go out of like the three schools that they knew. Mm -hmm. And that was a turnkey. And then sitting down with some of those families supported by my colleagues who were also white to be able to say, actually, Jillian is credible and she's valid and she's got some work going on. Let me talk about that. Just that was a moment where folks said, let me think about this differently. So this was literally like introducing you in the school to scared white families. Yeah. And I had a superintendent at the time who was also white, who also was not afraid to say, um, this is worth looking at. And I had a chancellor at the time, um, Carmen, who wasn't afraid to say that Jillian's a good leader and um, it's a hidden gem in Brooklyn. And so with that kind of level of support, families are less afraid. Mm -hmm. um, so those are allyship. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what... Is there a, this is like, yeah. this is probably unfair, but is there like a single lesson from Borum Hill that you would say, this is the thing that I would love to share with every school leader from my time at that school? Yeah, it is fair. 
I have so many lessons because I had so many failures. I just kind of jumped in and was just like, let's let's get this thing going. And and when you do that, and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, I built systems, I built structures, and then we worked on people. And because I was modeling it, it was kind of okay. But when you're moving into going into systems, when you're moving to kind of expanding into larger groups of people, it's not okay because we I didn't tend to the black and brown kind of experience and particularly brown students who Pakistani families right Asian families and in the community particularly we had Cambodian we had um, Mexican American families we had we had Puerto Rican families we had so many families that there had their own trauma mm-hmm. that we didn't tend to yeah um, to get to the bottom line that I think in my work now I'm thinking very deeply about colorism is important to understand and we need to be pro-black and anti-racist because it's the foundation of all of our understanding but if we don't tend to also our brown folks who are getting so many different experiences they're not going to have access to what that means Mm -hmm. um and so i overlooked that and it and it did harm yeah so i think about that a lot so thinking about like a, a school leader who's listening right now and they're like i have like the students maybe I'm not thinking about, what would be your message? That what should they be doing? What's the, what's the first step? Yeah. I think the first step is that we cannot keep separating SEL, trauma, and race. They have their own kind of band of learning, but they also are deeply married into each other. And so part of the planning around race work, part of the planning of like getting to a deeper sense of community and learning is to be able to have a really detailed understanding about when do you talk about those three things in combination? And then when do you actually need to have a band that's very separate? And then how do you tend to the fact that we have black and brown folks who are both experiencing a very separate experience, but are both deeply hit by what it means to be um, Mm anti-black? And so I think that's the thoughtfulness that I think we are not tending to as a country as we're seeing things very compartmentalized and not figuring out how to weave it together, not taking the time to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's problematic. And so I'm think, doing a lot of thinking around how do I spend the next year training the right people um, in my community across black, brown, and white communities so that they're getting the thing that they need to be able to access the anti-racism that I need them to. Mm-hmm. So it's a message of slowing down, getting thoughtful, spending time on your trainers, but also thinking about those three bands in combination as it as it's married for adults. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. Do you go straight from Borum Hill to LA? I went to LA. Mm-hmm. How long were you principal of Borum Hill? Five years. Five years. Yeah. And then you found a boarding school. Have I got that right? So I went to Alliance in Los Angeles um, and worked with a great crew there. And then I did. And what's Alliance? Alliance College Ready Public Schools. It's a, a large charter system in, in Los Angeles. Cool. It does really great work, and I, I learned a great deal there. And then I did. I went in to kind of get it started, seed, seed of Los Angeles County, which is a boarding school, and such a cool concept. It really is. Um, and I was excited for the kids of, L, of, of L.A. And then Envision came. I just want to pause here real quick. Yeah. We don't need to get into it in the, the same amount. That, that seems wild to me. I mean, running a boarding school... <laughs> like being responsible for for teenagers 24 hours a day seems like an insane thing to do by choice to me but <laughs> um what's a lesson you took from that 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 people should should know about it didn't feel that strange for me like my family my mom was in foster care in in, in California and so we had 
uh, not only did she serve foster care, but we had foster care kids in our in our home and, and still considered part of our family. So for me, uh, the message really was about making sure that we're serving all kids of Los Angeles. I think that, you know, my learning out of that is it was much more of a, a bigger picture around how the systems need to better connect. So I was talking to probation, I was talking to foster care agencies, all working in compartmentalized places. And after COVID, not a good tracking system of what, fa what where families are and what kids need. Um, and so for me, my lesson was like, how am I, how am I going to start thinking about if I'm going to really be a um, kind of a pro-black, anti-racist leader, how am I thinking about how I'm utilizing all systems to be able to get to where I need to for school systems? Mm -hmm. And I don't think prior to that, I thought so deeply around the responsibility <clears throat> across a county. Yeah. So what's the secret? How do you do it? You make the phone call and you say, let's sit down. And I think for most of us, we think we serve the kids that we recruit and come to us. We don't see it as a larger system responsibility. And then if we don't, Who's, who's responsible for that? Mm -hmm. So I think in my work now, it, it is, it's about like, if, if we have kids that are coming out of their parents or in probation or they're in jail, who is supporting those kids to get to where they mm -hmm. need to go? Um, so I'm asking more folks to sit down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to Envision. Envision. When did you become CEO? A year ago, next wow. month. Okay. Hmm. Almost, almost happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> What's that been like? It's just so cool. So I, I now am living down the street from where I went to preschool. I've never had that experience where I drive by. I'm like, oh, I remember that. Or like memories come up. It's so cool. There's a feeling of like kind of giving back to the place that gave birth to me. So that's just neat. The Bay Area is just cool place to be. And Envision was just, look, it's project-based learning. It's about assessment work. It's about... Uh, kind of mindsets of adults. It's all the things. I used to hire Buck Institute to come over and work with me in, in New York City. So there was a synergy there already. And I have to say it's been the easiest transition I've ever had. Yeah. It's just the right people, right time, right right energy. And I got lots of ideas that they're excited about. So it's fun. So what are you, what are you folks excited about? We're excited about expanding work to adults. Like how do we think about mindset work? How do we think about leveraging stories and experience to get down to students. I think that's really important. We're excited about making sure we're talking about just not just kind of pieces of a system, but an entire system. How do you design that for each district or school that we have, which is really cool. We're excited about helping states better understand what that looks like um, and understand how kids go. And I'm also really like this, this kind of, you know, week has been really inspiring around how do we kind of codify what deeper learning must be at Envision? What does it mean to be authorized in that way? What does it mean to kind of live and walk that way? Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. What was the biggest surprise when you came to Envision and you got to know the schools? Mm. I would say that we have set up some really great structures to do some deeper learning, to kind of really understand how to kind of think and do, but we're still at a place because of so much rebuild. Um, and rehiring and, and all kinds of things over the last couple of years where we actually need a reset of mindsets. And that's actually a place where, you know, we thrive in so many different places. And then we have so many new folks that have come in. Mm -hmm. And so that virtually, that's that over the last couple of years, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. How are you doing that? We're, we're starting some training, some development, some engaging, and then also thinking about like what kind of supports do teachers need actually in the school sites, mm -hmm. not just around their content, but, but how do you work? 
How do you plan? How do you think about things? Um, how do you engage learners? If you're escalated, there's no way you can de-escalate a kiddo. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of the things that we're thinking about. How do you help a teacher with that? I think it's a lot of like conversation. So we're putting more folks in to kind of actually stop and say, we're going to plan this document, but before you do that, actually, let's just talk about where you're at. How are you thinking about it? How are your students experiencing you? So kind of stopping and saying, what are the questions that we're putting into place so that we're actually checking in with the human? Mm -hmm. um, we'll find that once we start doing that, they'll start doing that also with kids. So it's a ripple effect. So we need to actually model that. We've also done a lot of development with leadership team, including myself. I have a coach on how to be anti-racist and to kind of think about the strategy work across the network. That's a model for the organization. We all need to feel like we're getting coached and supported to kind of think differently. How's that going, getting coached? I mean, I'm stubborn. I don't. I think if she was in here, she'd be like, yikes, I think she'd be fine. It's great. I like it. Um, uh, you know, a I, lot just happened. Yeah, a lot just <laughs> happened. But I, I think uh, I love it. I mean, I, I have always loved being coached, and I like to have somebody that's like, nope, that's actually what you're doing right now is actually not thinking deeply about the, the most important people. It's like a dance teacher. It's like a dance teacher. I always like I always like a good old dance teacher, a nice ballet teacher that tells you exactly what you need to do. I'm guessing that's not exactly how it is with an anti-racist coach. <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes you need a little knocking, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and I appreciate a good knocking because it's, you know, you, to get out of your own mindset, you need someone to actually really push. Yeah. So um, it's important. <clears throat> and so, so how many how many schools are in Envision anyway? We have five. Got it. All in the Bay Area? Yep. We have in Oakland, Hayward, and San Francisco. And you're, and you're, doing, more, you're doing more professional development for other schools? Is that the... Yep. So we have a Learning Partners who also goes out to districts across the country around some of this work. Yeah. So we kind of refine it, and then we bring it back. I'm just thinking, like, within the world of project-based learning or deeper learning or generally however you want to take this... Mm. What are the things that you see at Envision that you think other schools should learn from this? Like other schools could do this and they should. Yeah, what I really admire, have always admired about Envision and I see it now in practice, is there's a beautiful way of kind of taking the criteria of what's made us successful or best practices and being able to kind of think about the land, the identity, uh, who the people are and really kind of adapt it to that group. So we've, we work in groups in Kentucky and then we have groups in, in Hawaii who have different kinds of indigenous backgrounds and experiences. And so it's really about how do we partner to kind of not duplicate our model because we haven't found that to be the way to go, mm -hmm. but actually how do we learn deeply so that you can actually enhance it through the people that are best served. Um, and so I, I think that is... That's why I was able to do better and deeper work because I wasn't being told this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's that's the secret sauce yeah. of Envision. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and what about within the schools themselves? Thinking about like Seed or Borum Hill, like I'm wondering what you kind of think like, oh, if the teachers there could learn this from the teachers at Envision, that would be awesome. Mm. Yeah. I think that the things that... I would love folks to come and see and kind of see what's really special is a level of interdisciplinary work that goes into those projects to kind of better understand not only the content, but the fact that what you're learning is a concept or something deeper across different different areas. And that there's an idea there. There's It's about power. 
It's about structures and change. It's a, there's a larger concept across um, that I think that is done with an elegance that I haven't quite seen in other places. Cool. All right. And with all this, everything you're doing, how are you making opportunities to dance and to move? <laughs> oh, I'd give myself a D minus on that. You know, in a sad way, once you start stop dancing, and I'm sure there's a dancer that's listening to this, is like, that's not true. But once you stop for a while, then, then you actually need to get back in shape and go. Mm-hmm. And so I'm stuck there. Right. Yeah. I mean. I need to go back. Another way of looking at it is like, I could go dance and I would, <laughs> I would dance and it would feel good. Yes. And, and I'm a lot further down than you are <laughs> at your worst. I think there's, you know, that's where perfectionism comes in. You know, you remember what you used to look like, feel like, sound like your body doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you have to have some level of courage to kind of go back there and be like, okay, it's the dumpy version. Great. Now you'll work your way back to that. Um, so I'm still convincing myself I could do that. All right. And then last question. This is, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but what's your recommended reading for folks? What are you excited mm. about that you've read recently? You know what? I have done, I've, I have been listening to podcasts. I haven't been that, reading. That counts. Have you listened to Al Scenes? No. Oh, you should. So um, Street Data, the, the new podcast, it's actually really kind of, it's thoughtful, it's inspiring, it's funny. Um, it's, you know, led by a, a black, a black woman who has lots of things to say. So I actually have been listening to her most recently and I would. And I that's, that. L, and who, what is Elsine's? Elsine, Mumbai, she's, she's a. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and just really smart and witty. I mean, you should also write, write uh, read that book as well. Um, that's what I would say to anybody. Read that book. Um, those are, that's kind of my two pieces today. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Jillian Juman for this conversation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>